Well, I'd like to, to tell you this morning about one of the stupidest things I have ever done. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. And my wife is at home terrified now of what's coming. When Bethany and I lived in Southern California for four and a half years, when I was in graduate school, we only had one car. And the seminary I attended had uh, someone donate a car to the school and said, you can give this car to a needy seminary student. Well, a friend of mine uh, was on staff at the church at that time, and he found out about this donation, and he knew that we only had one car, and Bethany was working, and I was working and going to school, and we were kind of juggling things, and so he contacted me and said, hey, somebody has donated a car, and uh, would you guys like it? All you have to do is contact this woman and, and go pick up a free car. How cool is that? How many people have ever been given a free car before just because they're a seminary student? So I contacted the woman and went and picked up the car, and it wasn't exactly the nicest car in the world, but it worked for the most part. It did make some funny noises, and I did have to carefully place a quarter in the engine at a certain point to make sure that the car could start. I don't know why that was the case, but it was the case. And it worked, but the oil light was always on. And when I drove it, it definitely made some concerning noises. But hey, it got me back and forth between work and home and school. And so I ignored the oil light and hoped against hope that nothing would go wrong. And I kept driving the car. Well, one Sunday, I was on my way to church a little bit early. I had to do announcements in our Sunday school class that Sunday, and I was driving along the highway on the way to church, and this clanging sound in the engine started. And it kept getting louder and louder. And as the clanging sound in the engine got louder and louder and sounded like a hunk of metal had come loose and was banging around, the car started to go slower and slower. And as much as I would press the gas, every time I'd press the gas, the sound would get louder and the car would go slower. And eventually the car stopped on the side of the highway. Now, if you know anything about cars, which I clearly don't, you know that what happened was that I threw a rod in the engine. And the reason that I threw a rod in the engine was because of the lack of oil, which the oil light had been indicating to me since I'd gotten the car. And because I'd been driving it with little to no oil, I had managed to completely destroy the engine in this car. Now, there's a point to this story other than to completely humiliate myself in front of a bunch of people in Detroit who know a lot about cars. I should have obviously paid more careful attention to the sounds that were coming out of the car and to the oil light. There were obvious problems with the vehicle and I should have paid attention to it. I should not have ignored the oil light and the noises that were coming from the car. I mean, yeah, the car was still working, it was still getting me from point A to point B, but I should have paid attention to what was happening with it. And here's the point for us today. All of us know that we will face death one day. But most of us try to ignore that fact in our daily lives. 
We try to keep that reality out of our minds as much as we can, and we prefer not to think about facing death. But there are times where you just can't ignore it, like when a global pandemic hits, and it is all around us, and we're facing it, and we're thinking about it, and we're hearing the numbers, the number of people that have died every day. I read an article this week by a theologian about the global pandemic. And the article was t- entitled, Deaths Delayed. That's right. The point is, the vast majority of the people, if anyone who is listening to my voice, you will not die of the coronavirus. But 100% of the people who are listening to my voice will face death. It may be six months from now, it may be a year from now, it may be 50 years from now, but you will, and I will, face death. The oil light is on. The car's making funny noises. You have to reckon with your own mortality. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes that that puts this very plainly to us. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In college, I heard a sermon preached on this that said it's better to go to a funeral than a party. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is telling us. We have to consider our own mortality. We have to face death. We have to think about death. Because this is the end of all mankind. We're all headed in this direction. The oil light is on for all of us. We have to lay to heart the lessons that thinking about our own mortality bring to us. And that's what I want to help us do this morning. Let's deal with this honestly and clearly. Let's think about death. Let's face death this morning and learn what we can from it. And to do that, I want to give you three questions to help us honestly face death. Three questions to help us honestly face death. The first one of these you can see on the screen there. Why? Why do we die? Why do we die? Now, many people, if they've ever thought about this question, many people would answer it by saying, because this is just the way the universe works. Life winds down. It happens all around us. Death is a natural end to life. This is just what happens in our world. But the truth is, is that death is not natural to us. Death is an intruder into creation. Death is a thief and an enemy. And it wasn't a part of the original world that God had made When you go back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, you see God create the world and it is filled and teeming with life. And you don't read about death until you get to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And in these verses, God clearly states that death will come into the world as a result of disobedience. Let me read these verses. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Disobeying God's command results in death. 
And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobey God's command, and what happens? Death is the result. Genesis 3.19, God is giving the consequences of their rebellion, and here's what he says to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But here's what we need to be clear about when we think about death in the book of Genesis. The death that entered the world here as a result of sin is not limited to physical death. It doesn't just mean here that our bodies will physically break down and die. It does mean that, but in Scripture, there are three types of death. And you can't separate these three types of death here when you think about the consequences of sin. They all go together as a result of sin. Physical death is the most obvious here, right? And that's the one that we all are aware of. Every person on earth is aware to some extent that they will die someday. But when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just physical death that was the result. Spiritual death is the second type of death, and that came to them immediately. Spiritual death means they had created a breach in their relationship with God. After they sinned, you can see what they do in Genesis 3. They hid from God. They ran from God. There was brokenness in their relationship with him. Now they couldn't be in direct fellowship with him because he's holy and they were now sinful. They were spiritually dead. But there's a third type of death as well. When you die physically, And in your physical death, you are also spiritually dead at enmity with God. It results in the third type of death. And that third type of death is eternal death. What that means is eternal, permanent separation from God. Eternal death means that the breach in your relationship with God will last forever. God is life. He is uncreated. He is the I am. And when you are cut off from his life for eternity, you have eternal death as the punishment for your sin. Three types of death in scripture. The New Testament authors make the connection between death or between sin and death very, very clear. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned in Adam. Romans 6.23, this is the first part of this. For the wages, the payment of sin is death. Which of the three types of death is Paul talking about in these passages? All three. They all go together. Physical, spiritual, and eternal death. We have earned death through our rebellion against God. And should we die physically in a state of spiritual death, we will enter into eternal death. So why do we die? Why is this reality? Why will 100% of us face death? Because our sin and our rebellion against God brings punishment. That brings us to our second question to help us honestly face death. 
So we know why we die, but why do we fear death? Why is this so unsettling to us? And even if you meet someone or even if you're listening to me today and you think, I don't fear death, it's probably because you've ignored it like I ignored my oil light on my car. I read a book a few years ago about the history of philosophy, and this guy said that you could summarize the entire history of philosophy, man's attempts to get wisdom by trying to figure out death and trying to eliminate the fear of death. That is what people are after when they're trying to wrestle with philosophy and questions of wisdom. Why is death so unsettling? when we really stop to think about it. And there are several reasons for that. First, it's inescapable. It's going to come after you, and it's going to get you. If you continue to read in the book of Genesis, after Genesis chapter 3, you read in Genesis 5, person after person is born into the world, and each and every one of those people faces death, with the exception of one. You can't outrun death. You can't outsmart it. You can't get away from it. It is the end. It is your destiny. It's coming. But beyond death being inescapable, we fear death because it makes life seem pointless. If we're really going to die and it's really all going to come to a conclusion and I'm going to close my eyes one day, what's the point of any of this? And if I'm really going to close my eyes in death one day and I can't take anything with me that I amass and accumulate in this life, then life seems pointless. All the work I'm doing, all the effort I'm putting into it seems like it's for no end and no good. It's not going to last. Listen to Psalm 49. Verses 7 to 12. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. It doesn't matter how much you have left in your 401k. It doesn't matter how many people you have managed and had power over in this life. Death will take it all from you. Death will treat you like the squirrel that got run over on the highway yesterday. Death doesn't care how great you dressed or how much influence you amassed on social media. It doesn't matter. The wise and the stupid alike go to the same place. Now, those are two reasons to fear death. It's unnerving when we think about those things. But the third reason to fear death is maybe the most unsettling and terrifying. And maybe you have not considered this at all. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. I told you a few minutes ago that physical death, the one we all know, is tied to spiritual and eternal death. And this verse tells us that 
Deep down, even if we deny it, intuitively, we all know that death doesn't mean simply the turning out of the lights. We know there is something beyond death. And we know I'm not perfect. Something's wrong in the world, and I have not lived perfectly. I've done wrong things. And I know, we all know that something is coming after death, and our conscience tells us that we are not ready for it. Judgment is coming. Everybody senses that justice must be done. And we sense that people will be held accountable at some divine level for the way that we live. There's going to be a great reckoning of judgment. And it's deeply unsettling to face death not being ready for that judgment. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says it this way, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. You and I are guilty. And even if we try to deny it, we know it deep down. Calling anything wrong in the world and saying that there are any moral standards means that we know that at some level we will be held accountable and that we have violated a higher moral standard. And so it's because of that, and it's because of our guilt, because of our sin, that death has a sting to it, and that sting terrifies us because judgment is coming. The situation looks pretty bleak. We know why we die. We know why we fear death. So what do we do about this? That's our third question. What are the options? Practically speaking, what do you do about this? There are basically two options to this. First of all, this is what the vast majority of people try to do. You try to deal with the fear of death and the reality of death on your own. This is what philosophy tries to do. Try to deal with this on your own. Some people try to downplay their fears. They try to ignore it. They try to treat death as a welcome friend. Well, death will end the suffering of this life after all. So maybe death is a welcome friend for me. One of the greatest emperors in the Roman Empire, Marcus Aurelius, was also a philosopher. And he wrote, interestingly enough, he wrote about death a lot. And I think maybe he wrote about death a lot because he was deeply unsettled about the prospect of death. And he was trying to convince himself of his own stoic position on death and his understanding of death. He was trying to make himself believe that everything would be fine, and so he wrote about it a lot. And here is a, a summary of his philosophy of life and death. I'm going to put this on the screen. Here's what, here's what he says we should do, how we should live. Just that you do the right thing. The rest doesn't matter. Cold or warm, tired or well-rested, despised or honored, Dying or busy with other assignments. Because dying, too, is one of our assignments in life. There as well to do what needs doing. And many people today try to approach death in this way. It's just another part of life. It's just an assignment. It's like turning the lights out. Our bodies go into the ground and we simply cease to exist. Other people deal with death on their own by giving in to distraction. They don't want to think about it. 
Our world turns on distraction. We can amuse ourselves to death and go through life never thinking about death and give ourselves to sports and video games and movies and Netflix. You can spend your life distracting yourself from death by trying to make as much money as you can and be as successful as you can at your job. You can try to find security through that and make yourself believe that everything will be fine. Most of us go down that route. When we lie in bed at night, in a moment of silence, and our minds drift to our own mortality, and we start to think that at some point this is all going to end, then we simply distract ourselves with thoughts of our next vacation or the last six hours of TV that we've watched. But I think one of the things that God is doing during our day, during this global pandemic, is forcing us to eliminate distractions. He's forcing us to reckon with our own inevitable death. You have to think about it. You can't ignore it today. This is what the church is here for. The church is here to help people to think about these things. One author put it this way, and I loved this. In this situation, the global pandemic, it is the task of the church to mug people with reality before reality itself comes calling. That's exactly right. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to mug you with reality. Help us to think about this inevitable end called death, and what are our options? What do we do with it? Do we distract ourselves? Do we treat this as another assignment? Or is there a second option? There is. The second option is to recognize that death is the ultimate enemy. To understand that there's nothing you can really do about it. You cannot face this enemy. You cannot defeat this enemy on your own, in your own strength. Why? Why don't you have the power? Because we are all deserving of death. We're deserving of death because of our sin. And we need someone else to win the victory over death for us so that we can be restored to life. The wonderful good news of the gospel is that when Adam and Eve sinned, and brought death into the world when they died physically and spiritually in Genesis, God did not sit idly by. He did not sit idly by and watch his creation be plundered by death. Instead, God acted immediately, and he brought the fight to death. If you have your Bible this morning, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Maybe you're already there. But I want to show you exactly what God did to fight against death. You can see in Hebrews chapter 2, when Adam sinned in Genesis, he was the covenant head of humanity. He was our representative. He was our stand-in. And you saw this in Romans 5. When Adam sinned as our representative, death spread to all human beings because we all sinned in Adam. And so because a human violated God's command and brought death and sin into the world, humans, or a human, would have to be the one to suffer the consequences of sin. 
And so because of this, God acted. And the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and blood in order to be a new representative for human beings. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Adam was the first representative for us. Jesus is the second and final representative for us. He was 100% God, and he became 100% man by taking a human body, a mind, and a will. Why? What was he hoping to accomplish by becoming a man? Look further in verse 14. He, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death... There are two things that he accomplished. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and secondly, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God became a man that, right in the middle of verse 14, that through death. So when the Bible says through death, what he's saying here, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the event of Christ's death became the means by which other events happened. There were things that flowed out of his death, through death. What happened? Those two things. He destroyed and he delivered. The first one, verse 14. He, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So it's like Christ was taken captive into prison, and through that captivity, he destroyed, overcame the prison guard, took down the walls of the prison, and brought freedom to all of those who are prisoners. It's like getting sick, and through that sickness, using that sickness to create a cure for the disease, Jesus entered into death without deserving to die, and through death, he destroyed the power of Satan. The second thing he did in verse 15, he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is a beautiful thing that Christ did for us. Death has changed because of this deliverance. Physical death is no longer the pathway to eternal separation from God. Do you hear that? Physical death has been torn apart from spiritual death and eternal death. Death has lost its sting. 1 Corinthians It's lost its sting because it has lost its connection to condemnation and to sin. If you are in Christ, through the work of Christ, you no longer stand condemned by the law or by sin. You have been forgiven of every sin because Jesus took the penalty for sin. He took the penalty that you deserved, the death that you deserved. And he went into death and he rose victorious over death. And so death has changed now. It has lost its sting. 
It's lost its bite. Now, instead of leading to eternal separation from God, death has become an entryway for believers into the very presence of our Savior. Death has become a victory. The ultimate enemy is now a house pet. Paul says it best in Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't fear it. It's a victory now. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says that to be removed from the body is to be present with the Lord. To die is not something to be feared for a believer. It's something to be anticipated in many ways because it means victory over this life and sin and suffering and it means eternity with the Lord. So what are your options this morning? You can continue to ignore death. I don't want to think about it. This is morbid. You can ignore death. You can distract yourself from it. You can continue to give yourself to the temporary amusements of the world and of this life. You can pursue money and security. You can try to be successful. You can try to make yourself believe that your good will outweigh your bad and that God will accept you because you're a nice guy. You could take any number of approaches to death, but it's coming. Or you can face the reality of death and you can face it head on and you can realize that you can't do this on your own. You can't beat it. You can recognize that you need a champion who will take the fight right into the teeth of death. You need someone who will give up his own life for yours and then he will crush death by conquering it through the resurrection to new life. And that is exactly what we celebrate this morning. That is why the resurrection is such a big deal. This is why millions of people all over this globe are rejoicing this morning in the victory that Christ won. When the heart of Jesus started beating again on that Sunday morning, almost 2,000 years ago, everything changed. The whole world changed. Death is no longer the greatest enemy. We don't have to fear death, and we can face it fully head-on, knowing that our Savior has fought the fight for us. So here's my plea to you this morning. Stop ignoring death. Instead, trust him. Turn from your sin and turn to the risen Savior. Cry out to him because he's taken the sting of death for you. He is your only hope. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for what you've done. We're thankful for the opportunity to think about these things this morning. Lord Jesus, you overcame death and you changed our greatest enemy into a victory for us, a pathway to eternity with you. We don't have anything to fear. 
We don't have to be unnerved. We don't have to be nervous. We can be confident in what you accomplished for us and the victory that you won over death. Death truly has lost its sting. It has no authority and no power over us. We have been given new life in you, and we anticipate eternal life with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Burn these truths on onto our hearts today and help us to live in light of this new life that we have in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.